This one? That's it. Yep. Let's just use this one tonight. How about that? Good to be back together tonight. Appreciate your attendance here. Appreciate the time we've been able to spend in worship. You know, technology can be a tricky thing. So appreciate those who deal with that on a weekly basis. Down here, it's, you know, we rely on the technology to go well. And when it's not going well up there, I know it's difficult. But appreciate Jeff for leading us in singing. I, I don't know, if Jeff, if, if, you're just, if, if it's just bad luck or what. But it uh, seems to be something like that. Appreciate Michael and Amber for all that they've done today. It's been announced over the last few weeks. They had a couple of different Christmas parties going on today. Today's a busy day, so appreciate that. I heard that they had an absolute takeover at Mr. Getty's and looking forward to another Christmas party tonight. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at a shorter section of Scripture tonight, but yet a powerful section of Scripture, beginning in verse 32 and working our way through chapter 5 in verse 2. Ephesians 4, verse 32, through chapter 5 and verse 2. Think about for just a minute what it means to be a copycat. The picture on the screen doesn't really describe it. Does it? When you think about being a copycat, we're probably not talking about placing a cat on top of a copier. Whenever you call somebody a copycat, what we mean by that, what we're saying is that you're mocking somebody. You're imitating somebody. What they do, you're doing. You're imitating them. You're mocking them. You know, sometimes copycats can be a little bit annoying. Have you ever been in a situation like that before? where someone was mocking, imitating every move that you make, every word that you say, every action that you take. The first 30 or 45 seconds, it might be a little bit funny, but then after that, it starts to get a little bit old, right? It starts to get just a little bit annoying. But then other times, being a copycat can be beneficial. For instance, one of the ways that children learn is by imitating, copycatting their parents. I think about a dad who's out mowing the yard with his son pushing his toy mower behind him. I think about a mother who's cooking dinner and a daughter comes along and wants to help her with that. And if she's not careful about it, the daughter just wants to take it over and cook dinner for herself. I think about a dad who's shaving in the morning and his young son decides that he needs to shave too. He needs to have a clean face as well. Just a side note on that picture, one thing I thought was pretty odd, I've never seen somebody make that face while they're shaving. It's not that fun, it's not that enjoyable. Uh, the, the kid, it might be a little bit more fun for him, but certainly not for the adult. My parents told me about a story one time whenever I was little. We were driving down the road, my dad was listening to the radio, and he was bobbing his head along to the beat of the music. Well, one day as we were driving down the road, he was listening to music, bobbing his head as he oftentimes did. My mom said that she looked back at me in my car seat and I had my eyes locked on my dad. My head was bobbing back and forth. It's a little bit offbeat, but sometimes a copycat, sometimes imitation can be beneficial. And I think that's what we see in this text. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 through chapter 5 and verse 2, we are instructed to be copycats. We are instructed to imitate God. When you think about the context of this and what we've been studying over the last few weeks, 
We've been talking about this new life in Jesus. The transformation that we experience as Christians. We've been talking about this new identity that we receive in Christ. Because in verse 20, we have learned from Christ. Because in verse 21, we've heard about Him and have been taught in Him. In verse number 22, we've laid off the old self. We've put that away. As Christians, we're not who we used to be. We're not living the lives that we used to live. You skip down to verse 24. When we take off the old self, what do we do next? We put on the new self. We embrace this new identity in Jesus. When you go to Romans chapter 6, Paul says the place where that happens initially is in the waters of baptism. Whenever we submit ourselves in obedience in that way, whenever we wade into the waters of baptism, Paul says in Romans 6, that old man is crucified. That old man is done away with. The old self is gone. That is the moment when we begin to walk in newness of life. But then as we talked about last week, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, this new life that we receive in Jesus, this new identity that we embrace in the waters of baptism is something that we are to live out on a daily basis in very practical ways. If you remember what we talked about last time, in verse 25, we talked about not lying and telling the truth. In verses 26 and 27, we talked about controlling our anger. We worked our way through that passage of Scripture saying, here's what it looks like to live out this new life in Jesus. Here's what it looks like to be a transformed person. If you step back to verse 24 for just a minute of Ephesians chapter 4, one thing that Paul says about this new self is that it's been created after the likeness of God. When we live out our new identity in Jesus, when we put off the old man and we put on the new man, what is that going to look like? Well, verse 24, Paul says it's going to look like God. That life is going to be created after the likeness of God. In other words, we are to copycat Him. We are to be imitators of God. I believe that Paul gives us three different ways that we are to copycat God in this section of Scripture. First, Paul says we are to copycat God's forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, we talked about this point last week whenever we were together, but because of how important it is and because of how difficult it is, I think it's worth discussing again. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, but then focus in on the next few words, forgiving one another. That can be so difficult sometimes, can it? Forgiving one another. We all have people in our lives who have hurt us in different ways. Maybe even people within this congregation who have said things to us or done things to us that they shouldn't have said. They said or did things to us that absolutely cut us to the bone. It absolutely broke our hearts. How are we supposed to forgive somebody whenever they hurt us so deeply? Paul tells us how. When you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, forgive one another. How do I do it? As God in Christ forgave you. We are to copycat, imitate God's forgiveness. I love how Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. We referenced this section of scripture last week. Tonight, let's take some time to walk through it. When you go to Matthew 18 in context, going back to around verse number 15, Jesus is talking about what we do whenever a brother sins against us. 
He says when a brother sins against you, then you take that fault to him and you talk about it between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if not, you take two or three witnesses with you. You discuss it again. If he continues not to listen, then you take it before the entire church, the entire assembly. If he doesn't listen to the encouragement of the entire assembly, then Jesus says he's to become to you like a tax collector and a Gentile. That's when church discipline has to take place. So as Jesus talks about that kind of situation, what to do when a brother or sister sins against you, it brings up a question in Peter's mind. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? That's what Jesus has been talking about. If your brother sins against you, then here's what you do. Peter says, I have a question for you. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter probably thought he was being pretty generous there. Common with rabbis of the day, they taught that three times was enough. Forgive somebody three times, and then after that, cut them off. I love Jesus' response. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Other translations say 70 times seven. What does Jesus mean by that? Is Jesus saying that we should forgive someone 77 times? Keep little tally marks. You forgive them 77 times, but that 78th time, they're done. Or forgive them 490 times if you're reading out of the King James, New King James, and that 491st time, don't forgive them anymore. Is that what Jesus is saying? I read a commentator who was commenting on Matthew 18 and verse 22, and he had this to say. He said, forgiveness for Christian brothers and sisters knows no boundaries. I think that's what Jesus is communicating. Our forgiveness for one another, the forgiveness that we should be willing to extend doesn't have a number tied to it. It knows no boundaries. So in order to prove that point, Jesus continues forward to tell a parable. Maybe a parable that you're familiar with. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You know how much money that was? Back in that time, 10,000 talents was about 20 years of wages. So just to put that in perspective, I'll use myself as an example. Let's say that I started working on the day that I was born, September 14, 1997. And I worked every single day, never had a day off, and never spent a single penny until about four years ago. That's how much money that is. 20 years worth of wages. This is a debt that this servant is never going to be able to repay. It's a debt that's too much. It's too much money. He's never going to be able to repay it to this king, this master, and he's going to pay, face punishment for it. Verse number 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. But verse 26, the servant fell on his knees imploring him, begging him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. As the servant begs the master, he doesn't ask for the debt to be forgiven. He asks for just a little bit more time. If you'll give me just a little bit more time, I'll pay you back every single penny. Just be patient with me a little bit longer. What did the king, what did the master choose to do? Did he choose to give him a little bit more time? 
Did he go ahead and sell him so that he could get his money back? Verse 27, out of pity, compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. A debt that he couldn't pay. A debt that was too heavy for him. The master forgave every single penny. Now what's the point for us as Christians? I think what Jesus is wanting us to think about there is the forgiveness that God has extended to us. We owe God a pretty large debt, don't we? Think about it in your life. How many times have you sinned? How many times have you done something that you shouldn't have done? How many times have you said something that you shouldn't have said? How many times total in your life have you went against what God desires for you throughout the pages of His Word? If you're like me, it's too many to count. We owe God a debt that we can't repay, just like this servant with his master. But yet, what has God done? When we submit our lives in obedience to him, whenever we turn everything over to Christ, we walk in with a debt that's too heavy for us to bear, and we walk out not owing anything. We serve a God who in Hebrews chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, says, I will remember your sins no more. They're gone. They're erased. They've been taken care of. God has forgiven us for such a massive debt. All of the times that we've broken His heart. All of the times that we've went against His word. And the question is, are we willing to forgive one another? That's what Jesus focuses on as He continues. Verse 28, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius was one day's wage. Just a fraction of the 10,000 talents that we saw a moment ago, this is 100 days worth of wages. So you wake up, you work every single day for 100 days, and you're going to be able to pay off this debt. Just a fraction of what the servant owed just a few verses earlier. But notice he went out, that same servant who was forgiven, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a very small debt, 100 denarii, and seizing him began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? Verbatim, word for word. That is the same plea that the servant gave just a few verses earlier. The same plea that he gave is the plea that he's receiving in verse 29. Just give me a little bit more time and I'll pay you back every single penny. But verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What's the point that Jesus is making there? Think about the great debt that God has forgiven us for, a debt that we couldn't possibly repay. How do we oftentimes respond to that? Well, we go out to other people who have wronged us, other people who have hurt us, and we refuse to extend forgiveness to them. God has forgiven us of our great debt. We refuse to forgive other people of very small minuscule debts. But then we think, we try to justify, well, what that person did to me wasn't very small. What they said to me, what they did to me wasn't very small from my perspective. Well, if you compare what that person did to you with what you've done to God, does it begin to get a little bit smaller? Does it begin to become a little bit more Minuscule? We're willing to receive forgiveness from God for a debt that we can't repay. But then we're not willing to extend that forgiveness to people who hurt us. People who owe us debts. How does God feel about that? 
Let's keep reading. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's a striking question. I gave you mercy. I gave you compassion. I gave you forgiveness. Shouldn't you have been willing to give compassion, mercy, and forgiveness to this fellow servant? But that's not what he was willing to do. So verse 34, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. When we read through that parable from Jesus, what's oftentimes called the parable of the unmerciful servant, what's the one point that we should walk away with? Peter asked a question. How many times should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Here's Jesus' answer. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Forgive one another how? Even as God in Christ has forgiven you. I think in that statement we find that God's forgiveness should bring two words to our minds. Number one, God's forgiveness is an example for us. God's forgiveness for us is an example for how we should forgive other people. It's a path that we should walk down. It's a pattern that we should follow. Number two, God's forgiveness is a motivation. God's forgiveness in my life is what motivates me to forgive others who have sinned against me, others who have wronged me. I'm not motivated to forgive other people because they deserve it. I'm not motivated to forgive other people because that's what's due or it's just the right thing. No, God has given me so much forgiveness. And that motivates me to turn around and forgive other people. Paul challenges us to copycat God's forgiveness. So the question is, who is that person in your life? Who is that person in your life that you're holding bitter anger against? Who is that person in your life that you have a grudge against? Who is that person in your life this very night that you need to forgive? As Christians, we have to recognize the great debt that God has forgiven us for. And that should be an example. That should be a motivation for us to reach out and to forgive others. To no longer be held captive by hatred or bitterness or grudges, but to let it go. Forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Number two, we are to copycat God's nature. As we transition into Ephesians, the fifth chapter in the first verse, we find a phrase that's pretty easy to read, but sometimes it's very hard to do. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. Paul challenges us to be reflections of God. We should mirror God's nature. We should mirror God's character as we go out into the world. Copycat God's nature. You know what we have to do in order to do that? If we're going to imitate God, if we're going to imitate who He is in His nature and character, it requires us to know who He is. You can't copycat, you can't imitate something that you don't know anything about. Sometimes this happens with me and Leslie, and I don't know why. It gets under my skin. Sometimes I'll be humming a song, and she'll start humming a song, thinking that it's the song that I'm humming. And it's not. It's because she hadn't heard the song that I'm humming. Have you ever tried to quote a movie before, maybe a, a line that you think is pretty funny, and the person looks at you like you have four eyes? 
Like you, you've absolutely gone crazy. Why don't they get the quote? Because they haven't seen the movie. You can't imitate a song. You can't imitate a movie that you've never heard or you've never seen. And the same principle is true here. We cannot copycat, imitate a God. We can't reflect a God who we don't know. How can we know about God? Well, we have to turn to Scripture. In the pages of Scripture, God has revealed to us Himself. He has revealed to us His nature, His character. He's revealed to us who He is. When we spend time in Scripture, we're able to come to know who God is and subsequently reflect that in our lives. But it's not just about facts. It's not just about knowing facts about God. It's about knowing Him personally. If we don't have intimate, deep relationships with the Father, then I would argue it's going to be hard for us to know Him. It's going to be hard for us to reflect Him. It's going to be hard for us to imitate Him if we haven't experienced Him for ourselves. So when we read Scripture, when we grow in our relationships with our Creator, we're able to see who He is. We're able to come to a knowledge of His character and His nature. And when we have that knowledge, we're able to reflect that in our lives. Therefore, be imitators of God. Well, what motivates us to do that? When you keep reading in verse number one, Paul says we're God's children. That's what motivates us to imitate Him. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John writes, All who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right, the privilege, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But notice in this text, we're not just God's children. We're not children who have been forsaken or neglected. We are not children who are unloved. We find in Ephesians 5 and verse 1 that we are God's beloved children. We are God's children. And He loves us more than we can even imagine. More than we can even put into words. That's what John says in 1 John 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Romans 5 and verse 8 says that God shows His own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are God's children. His children who He loves more than anything else, a love that we can't even understand. Therefore, we are to copycat his nature. We are to imitate His character. What we know about God, what we see about God in Scripture, as we continue to grow in relationship with Him, we are to reflect that in our lives on a daily basis. When people see us, they shouldn't see us. They should see the God who we serve, the God who we have devoted our lives to. And then finally, number three, we are to copycat Jesus' love. We find another command in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 where Paul says, walk in love. Walk in love. That's very similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. How do we do that? How do we walk in love according to Ephesians 5? Well, we could jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31. We could talk about how walking in love is the more excellent way. Or we could read all of those adjectives about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6, love is patient and kind. 
It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We could even go to the end of the chapter. And we could talk about how faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. What does it mean to walk in love? Well, I believe all of those verses we read through, all of those descriptions we saw are true. But it's not what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. Notice in Ephesians 5 and verse 2, he says we are to walk in love. Well, how do we do that? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Think about the cross. Think about what Jesus was willing to do for us. Jesus loves us so much that He was willing to give Himself up for us. Jesus loves us so much that He was willing to suffer for us. He was willing to die for us. He loves us so much that He was willing to be beaten for us, to be spit on, mocked, humiliated for us. He was willing to be nailed to a cross, to hang there six hours, suffocating to death on behalf of our sins, on behalf of the iniquities that we have committed, what we are guilty of. Jesus loves us so much, as Paul says, He was willing to be the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, not for His own sins, but for our sins. The love that we see in the cross, the love that we see in Jesus' blood, the love that we see in His sacrifice is the love that should define our lives. That is the love that should define everything that we do, every decision that we make. Walk in love. How do I do it? Well, look at how Jesus loves you. Look at how Jesus was willing to give up His life for you. How He was willing to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Copycat Jesus' love. We're familiar with the bracelets that read WWJD. What does that mean? What would Jesus do? I saw another bracelet one time that said HWLF. What in the world does that mean? I asked one of my friends what that meant. What does HWLF mean? She explained to me it's a response to WWJD. What would Jesus do? He would love first. I think that's what we should do. Walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I'm reminded of the story of an agnostic who came to a really hopeless point in his life. He saw no meaning in life. He saw no purpose in his life. And as a result of that, he was actually contemplating suicide. But before he went through with it, he hired a private investigator. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to find a preacher who is dedicated to Jesus who authentically lives like Jesus. I don't want any hypocrisy. I don't want anything of that nature. I want to find a preacher who lives like Jesus. Eventually, that private investigator came across the man that you see up on the screen. His name is Will Houghton. He was a preacher. He ultimately became the president of the Moody Bible Institute. This private investigator watched him for about three months. And after watching him for three months, he went back to the agnostic and said, this is your guy. This is the guy that you're looking for. In my opinion, he's as authentic as they get. So one Sunday, the agnostic ended up going to the church that Will Houghton preached at. A few weeks later, he gave his life over to Jesus. He was converted. 
he ended up meeting a young lady in that congregation and they married. They had children and whenever the children got old enough, they decided to go to the Moody Bible Institute where Will Houghton was serving as the president. The point of that story is, I think, a powerful one. People are watching us. As we go out in the world, as we live on a daily basis, people are watching what we do. They're watching what we say. They're watching how we live. And the question is, what do they see? When people look at my life, when people look at your life, do they see us? Do they see our sin? Do they see our brokenness? Do they see our selfishness? Or do they see our Lord? Do they see a life that's not perfect, but a life that's trying? A life that's giving the best effort to copycat God, to imitate God, to imitate His forgiveness, His nature, and His love. When we live that kind of life, I think it's then that we're able to say the words of Galatians 2 and verse 20, that I've been crucified with Christ. And it's not about me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Copycat, imitate, reflect God. Do you need to begin that journey tonight? In the waters of baptism? Do you need to recommit yourself to that effort, living a life that is like God? If you have any needs, we'd love for you to make those known. We'd love to help you in any way that we can as Jeff comes forward and leads us in our invitation song.